Good evening. Try doing what Mark did, being polite. It's a really exquisite evening. And the evening is so much more exquisite when we're a little quieter, isn't it? The senses are cleared. Eyes are more open, ears open, nose, tongue, everything. When it's open, the world is, that felt sense is delicious, deliciousness. I want to begin this evening's talk with one of my favorite poems from a Tibetan teacher named Nosho Kempo Rinpoche that I have a feeling you have a little more understanding of after sitting for five days now, five full days. Nosho Kempo says, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. So just looking at you now, just feeling this field that we've created, I know that you've begun to, whether or not you've been through the roller coaster ride or not, Everyone has, I know it. Uh, you have begun to perhaps sense in you this, what he calls, he doesn't call it constructed or created great peace. He calls it natural great peace. A peace within us that is completely natural, that is ever available, but often overlooked. And we begin as we over the course of five days, we, one of the metaphors that I used to like was from a teacher named Nisargadatta. He says, we, you brush the dust of memory. We've been doing a lot of brushing. And slowly, the clear mirror of our hearts, our heart minds, uh, show themselves. And we begin to sense what shines through is this natural, natural great peace. And with that, that uh, maturing, which I think that all of you have been doing in those uh, awakening factors that Anna spoke so eloquently about last night, uh, the qualities of mindfulness and concentration and energy and effort and tranquility and investigation and rapture and equanimity, you have, you've been maturing these. and. It shows in your faces. I've commented to a few people today. In fact, most people that walked in the room today, actually everyone, I shouldn't. <laughs> everyone. Really, of course, it depends on the state of mind that I'm in, whether I notice or not. But it was quite apparent to me today that, um, that I was getting, uh, you could call it a darshan, a blessing, as each person came in with their, with their tenderness, with their light. And all of you look beautiful tonight. Uh, and you may even be able to have a more, more of a sense when you are here tonight or as, as you've gone through the day today. In those moments when you have rested in natural great peace and just felt yourself as you feel yourself now, not the idea of yourself, not your situation, but just being here, that it's not bad when you're just being yourself. What really gets us into trouble is when we lose touch with this naturalness, with our natural being, and we enter into the world of, of our uh, concepts, our ideas, our stories, our thoughts, and enter into the, the version of ourselves that plays through our mind. 
really a version of ourselves, a version of a person who doesn't really exist. I always find that amazing, even when I say it and when I think about it. That person that plays in my mind does not exist. It's a, it's a virtual reality. It's a fabrication. It's an abstraction. It's just a, a bubble. Now, when I know that, I don't disappear all of a sudden. I just begin to sense that there may be a difference between what I am and who you are, which is a little bit ambiguous, what we are, but the difference between what I am, what you are, and that amazing drama that plays through my mind, that what I call my, what the Buddha called Sakya Ditti, self-view, a view of myself, which can never capture what or who I am, can barely approximate, and it mostly insults what I am. I've been, those of you who've sat with me before know that, um, that I've been more and more over the last five and three quarters years struck by this, what I call your suchness, your, just your naturalness, each of your individual unique expressions of life, each of you, as I look at you, the only way you could ever be, just your, whatever that is, your naturalness. I, words don't capture it, but I, each of you is so unique and so different. But what's informed this is I have a five and three quarter year old daughter, and her name is Molly. And it is, um, she is uh, clearly my number, I've had lots of teachers. All of us have sat with many teachers. I've had a lot of gurus. I've had a lot of experiences, but I had never quite had a guru like her. I've never been able to watch the developmental process in a, in a human being so closely and just see how she has just emerged out of the elements of earth, air, fire, water into this form that is quite unbidden, un, un, uh, without trying, is growing into this expression of life that is unique, the most unique human that's ever lived. But of course, that's true of each of you. And she is so clearly, as I often like to think of it, as she so clearly has that quality of molliness, as each of you has whatever your version of that is. And yet, and this is kind of the new version of her teachings for me is she is so busy being Molly, so immersed in life, being fed by all the forces, personal and non-personal. But out of that is also emerging as she becomes socialized. What's emerging is the thought, I am so-and-so. I'm Molly. I have curly hair, wavy hair, and I want to have straight hair. It's painful. And you can see her pain body for, forming moment by moment. And of course, we, I will continue to the best of my ability to keep reflecting back to her, her molliness. And yet, she's in the beginning of her development of this uh, imaginary version or some idealized version of Molly that uh, she would like to become based on her friends who have straight hair and, or who have this doll or that doll. And, and of course, out of that comes a certain kind of, when she sees that, she comes a certain kind of tension. And that tension spawns a lot of um, urge to feel better. And so into her mind, as would be true for each of you, into your mind comes a, a thought. One, I'm not, 
quite okay the way I am. And I love myself, so I want to figure out a way to be okay. And the good news is you've been through this so many times that you've realized that it doesn't work so well to go out of yourself in search of that relief. And you've got, you've, you have the purity of understanding to know that, uh, that if you really want to find that relief, you need to reclaim your heritage, <laughs> reclaim your version of molliness. Thich Nhat Hanh reminds us when he says, you who were the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being that destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So I, I really think that you can probably relate to sensing a bit of a difference uh, between your um, sense of just being here, where there is impossible, it is impossible to find as you sit here, if you don't consult your memory, it is impossible to find any evidence for there being something wrong with you. Yet that version that plays through our mind that often, and even in the course of this retreat, has often tormented you generates with conviction the belief that something's wrong and that the, somehow the only way uh, that relief can be found is not here. This, of course, we talked about the other night. We've talked about every night. Every talk is really a version of the Four Noble Truths. When we, when we go out of ourselves, we grasp at what's next, we suffer. When we See through that, we let go, we come home. So you've probably experienced both the peace and ease that is natural to you, but you also understand much better the second half of that poem, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. Any of you relate to that? This is what Bhante Gunaratna says, thinking about our, our, describing our thoughts and our minds. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse <laughs> on wheels barreling down a hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you never noticed. But we have to pause for a moment. You have seen your mind up close. You've seen the thinking mind, the way that we create our sense of self moment to moment, this virtual version, the, the excessive version, the flawed version, we see the way it gets created moment to moment. But at least for me, sometimes when I reflect on it, I consider this is what's been driving me around. This is where I've been, this is what I've been consulting for my sense of myself. That's a little scary. <laughs> but it's really wonderful, wonderful news when we start to reawaken these intrinsic qualities of love, of, of wakefulness, of discernment, of all those wholesome qualities that begin to, um, to help us uh, make that shift. Anna spoke about the shift from being just carried along by this stream to beginning to notice it. And we included thoughts in the in the instructions this morning. And it's very interesting to see what, um, how, different, how different our experience is. I don't know whether it is for you, but it was such a revelation for me. The first time I just, I started to, I was sitting quietly minding my own business and 
without any prompting at all, this, this flywheel just kept generating a kind of a thought machine. As our friend uh, Wes Nisker says, we have a thinking problem. It just starts generating thoughts. I don't like to think of it as a problem. It's just what minds do. They think. And the idea is not for them to stop thinking. The idea is for us to somehow make a shift uh, from being just carried along by them to noticing them. And to see that whatever our thoughts are, uh, are just uh, a conceptual overlay, just a story. Trying to somehow put, uh, explain or to put in perspective our life. But it's not, it's also interesting how this happens, how this flywheel happens. It's said that we have something like 65,000 thoughts a day. You heard this before? And that 60, and that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. (laughs) So you can see that it's habitual, it's habit, so it's conditioned. And when you see that it's conditioned, you see that the thoughts are thinking themselves. So there's... There's, this is our, one of our ways of glimpsing. There's a, there's a teaching that um, the direction of our practice, I'll just back up for a moment. The direction of our practice is to not so much uh, get in touch with the meaning of life, to find out why things are the way they are, although that's very interesting. But it's to begin to see for ourselves to understand how life works. And when we understand how life works, and when I say life in this case, I say what experiences are knowable. So what we think, what we feel, what we smell, what we touch, what we taste, what we hear, that we start to see that there are some common elements to every experience. And if we know those common elements, then somehow our relationship to those experiences change. And those common elements, as we've spoken about many times, is whatever arises in our mind, body, experience, it arises there for a moment, momentary, and passes away. This is a mark of every single experience. And the second mark of every single experience, and you get to know this from the inside intuitively. You may not think about this, but you begin to live in harmony with this truth. In fact, there's a chant that's done every day in in, um, monasteries to remind us. It goes something to the effect of all things that arise have the nature to pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings a sense of well-being, brings great happiness. We begin to see everything comes and goes. So we stop fighting, stop trying to hold on so tight to the things that are changing. We stop trying, we stop trying to hold on to our thoughts. You see, there they, there's, there's, this is just a thought machine. This is just one of the 65,000. Any of you have that sense as you went through the day? Just a cavalcade, a waterfall, a stream. So it has the the mark of impermanence. It has the mark of, because it's impermanent, you can't hold on to it. It's not, you can't rest there. It's not a satisfactory place to rest. It's not reliable. This is dukkha in its meaning of unreliable. Can't, can't Can't hang there very long. It goes. And it also becomes clear that these thoughts, as we've mentioned several times, they think themselves. They appear and they disappear. You've heard the name of the book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. These thoughts just come. You can't say, now think about this, now think about that, now don't think about this, now you can say all day, do this, do that, but it does what it wants. And that creates an interesting shift in perspective. Making that shift in perspective allows us to see that we could never be captured in our thoughts. Our thoughts are 
our story. As Henry Audubon put it, says if there's a difference between the bird and the field guidebook and what the field guidebook says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. <laughs> if we get a little space around our thoughts, we stop believing them quite as much. It seems as we pay attention to our thinking, as thinking appears and disappears in awareness, that they are initially it seems like they're constant. And people have said, I'm constantly thinking this, unbroken. But we begin to see not so much the continuity of thoughts, we start to see the discontinuity. We start to see the space between our thoughts. We start to sense that there are moments, as Dujim Rinpoche suggests, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, that there is this space. And in that space, what, what are we then? Who are we then in that space? Now again, in that space, even now, none of you disappeared, did you? Maybe the idea of yourself disappeared. But we're all still here in full living color. But something happens between us. At least it, I, I'm getting this sense as I sit with you. The dividing lines blur a little bit between us. We don't feel quite as separate after our last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. Something begins to reveal itself to us, as many people have described in their practice, having these moments when they feel like life is breathing them, the trees are inside of them, the birds, the snow, lose that sense of inside and outside. This is a shift in perspective. And it reminds us that sometimes the perspective that we're living in, the view, the very narrow vortex that we live in when we live in the, through the view of our self-ideas, sakyaditi, that's self-image, I'm not enough, I'm, I'm not smart enough, I'm stupid, or I'm too this, or I'm too that, or I should be more of this, or could be more of that. Somehow I got carried away with those identities and now I forgot where I was. <laughs> is, of course, this has gone on for all of us for 35 million years, as one of my teachers said. But we begin to see beyond these ideas, we begin to question a little bit. And that's how, in some ways, how practice can begin to organically help us begin to see through this, what the Buddha called uh, this version of what he called avijja or ignorance. Taking this changing flow, this sea of experience to be me and mine and creating a whole identity about it, whole story. I'll talk about it a little bit again, how we do have these moments of there being a little space in our minds where we're a little less defined, we're just being ourselves. In fact, I think the times in our lives where we function really beautifully, maybe 200% better, as one of my teachers said, when we're just being ourselves, not really being busy being ourselves, like the idea of ourselves, we're just doing what we do, or kind of in the flow, as Anna was speaking about, in the, forgot what it was, in the flow or um, in the zone. 
Usually those are the times where we're least self-conscious. And we're just open, but isn't it true? And in those moments, there's awareness, conscious. You don't have to try to be right now. But then, as Dujim says, Dujim Rinpoche says, a thought arises. Now that thought is a beautiful thing. It's just a thought. It's an, it's an expression of this awareness. Without awareness, you would not know the thought without some kind of consciousness. So it's an expression of awareness, and if it's recognized when it arises, if it's seen for what it is, it arises and does those three things. It, it arises and passes away all by itself, can't hold on to it, empty of self, marked by those three characteristics. But if that thought goes unnoticed, the way Dujim Rinpoche describes it, it spreads out into ordinary thinking. That thought spins out. And he calls this the chain of delusion. Because it's then, it's in those moments that many of you have described, those moments that we often live in, we wander a long time confused. We literally incarnate, we take birth in that little version of ourselves. And in that version, partly because what has actually spawned those thoughts could, could be one of those moments that we've tried to point out to you that are happening all the time, these moments of experience that are either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Just for an example, a pleasant moment, a moment that has a feeling tone of pleasant, sound, sight, that moment arises. There's, this is a little technical, but I'll just give you a little sneak preview. There are five things that happen in that moment. That moment of just hearing a, what we call a pleasant sound. There's, and what's needed is there's an ear here, and there's the sound, and that's the moment that those two meet. It's called contact. And that contact, immediately what follows that is that little feeling tone. So there's contact, and there's feeling, and then there's, there's perception, which is, tells you what it is, and then maybe thoughts about it, and feelings about it, and and there's consciousness there. Those happen very rapidly, those five little experiences, over and over and over again. But when that moment goes unnoticed, which it does much of the time, the pleasant experience of that sound produces a little bit ch a charge, a little charge. And that charge is, I like it. That moment of I like it produces a little, there's a little bit of tension. This is why sometimes the the, these five things that I talked about, the five skandhas, I don't want to get into it too much tonight, but sometimes the, just the fact that we experience things, that's what I was talking about the other night as what's called sankara dukkha. It's just the dukkha of, of just feeling, <laughs> of just the charge that takes place over and over and over again, and especially when it's mixed with liking and disliking. So liking and disliking produces a little contraction. I want. And, and that charge then produces, there's a little tension that builds up, and that spawns, this is just a way of talking about it, that spawns, it spawns some thinking. And before you know it, we've entered into the world of, I'm a little uncomfortable, I don't even know it, but I'm a little uncomfortable and I want, to be, I want to get more comfortable. I love myself. And so I've got to figure out how to get more comfortable. And our mind starts into its strategy. How am I going to get to the end of this sitting in one piece? And then as we've used that example over and over, the, 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 um, in the version of the unpleasant, the disliking, it spawns that, that strong desire for the bell to ring. And, 
in that we have formed an identity. It's all about me. It's no longer just hearing. It's no longer just sensing. It's no longer just these, these changing experiences coming and going. We've entered into that world where I am having an experience. I don't like it. And I've got to figure out how to get over it, get through it. And it's this point that we enter into the world of, of the drama of self, where our sense of well-being, as long as we're in that world of, I'm not okay the way I am, even in the most simple moments, we are held hostage in a way. We are suspended. Our well-being is suspended until we figure out how I, the imagined I, can figure out how to become better or to get rid of the pain or to become different or to have more stuff or to connect with somebody or to heal myself or to whatever it is. But we create, literally create an identity in our mind of someone who's got the problem. And we each have our version of the big problem. Can you relate to this at all? What's your version? What is your version of the big problem? The good news about this is when we start to notice our thinking, we can, we can unplug. We can, un, we can relinquish that that strong addiction, that strong identification. As Nisargadatta put it, you do not need to correct yourself, only set right the idea of yourself. Learn to separate yourself from the image and the mirror. Keep on remembering, I'm neither the mind or its ideas. Do it patiently and with conviction and you will surely come to the direct vision of yourself as the source of being, knowing, loving, eternal, all-embracing, all-pervading. Just sense again, remember, what is your experience after that last internal drama has passed and before the next one arises? What's that like right now? I'm reminded as I say this that the words of Albert Camus where he said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. Or Rumi says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So you would admit that you have been through an enorm enormous drama since you've gotten here. How many of you have gone through drama since you got here? Thank you. It's a, a very honest group. Now, I always find it interesting to remember that in some way, the only thing that's happened to any of us, if you really look at what happens in this unfolding present, these unfolding present moments, there's really only six things that happen over and over again. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, consciousness of these coming and going. The rest is sakyaditi, is the self-drama, the self-story. But we can make a general view that this is a self-story, but it, it's also interesting to see the different flavors that it comes in. And the Buddha talked about the flavors that we enter into this drama. Now, I've talked about the, the general sense of uh, I'm not okay or I'm not enough, and we've all talked about some version of this. And 
I was looking down, I was seeing this, uh, this is not unfamiliar to the world of media and cartoons. Here's some cartoon called uh, the Rhymes with Orange cartoon where it says, uh, it's called The Checklist to Feeling Pathetic. And it's got six different captions. Choose someone and compare them unfavorably. Compare yourself unfavorably, unfavorably to them. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> Examine your face closely in the mirror. Note all faults, flaws, sorry. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. <laughs> Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. <laughs> Just the ways that we get wound up in our, our self-idea, like Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes, where Hobbes uh, says to me, says to Calvin, aren't you supposed to be at doing your homework now? And Calvin says, well, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my self-esteem. <laughs> it is? Sure, it sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. And Hobbes responds, your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus. <laughs> Please, let's call it informationally impaired. So all sorts of, all kinds of meing and myeing, um, and how I was thinking today how this door coming in the hall is very loud. I think it's kind of loud. It's not, I've been to retreat centers where People can come into the room fairly quietly. But I find it also very useful to notice how when I'm sitting, how somebody comes in the door, it becomes all about me. And my likes, my dislikes, everything becomes all about me. Why are they coming in so loudly? Why can't they come on time? Why can't they stay the whole time? Whatever it is. It's all about, it becomes all about me. So the Buddha talked about the three main ways that we enter into this world of, of our self-view, even though they're all the different feeling tones of selfing, of, of being inflated or deflated or, or feeling good or feeling not so good. The three he described were, were creating a lot of self around uh, what we want and what we don't want. And we've talked a lot about that on the retreat and how we can literally enter into this world of, of the imagined me going out to, to find the end of the rainbow, find that experience that will make me happy. And I expected Mark to speak of this the other night, but for those of you especially who are relatively new to retreats, there is a phenomena where this kind of selfing process gets generated in a very dramatic fashion on retreats. And it's, it's a phenomena called the VR. The VR are the words for Vipassana romance, where there is that moment of contact with a pleasant sight of someone, whether it's their crocs or their socks or their, the way they walk or the way they, whatever it is, and that pleasant feeling produces a charge of liking, and that liking spawns this world of, I like this, I want it, I've got to have it. And before you know it, it is mating, dating, travel, children, the whole drama almost to the point where it, it, there is this painful sense that I cannot be um, happy until I somehow consummate this <laughs> deep desire. And it's so interesting how it starts with we're just sitting there minding our own business, being this open environment, this natural great peace. 
And just with this little trigger, this particular, what the Buddha called tanha papancha, this proliferation, this complication that our mind does, we've just entered into that identity. And our body tightens up. And because it's associated with a lot of delight at first, we get carried away by it. It's, in the sutras, it's often talked about tanha with delight, craving with delight. And, and this then builds this whole story. And meanwhile, as we've been um, inviting you to do, sense by being mindful, we begin to sense what's actually happening here. What is the bare experience? And there's desire. Ah, the feeling of desire in the body, not so pleasant. But in the mind, we have entered into that world. The good news about our practice is we can recognize, oh, this is selfing around desire. This person that I'm dreaming about, both the person that I imagine myself to be and the person I imagine meeting, do not really exist. They're virtual. The most lovely example of this, and poignant and painful example, at least I've heard, is in the poem by George Bilger called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The box set of complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust, unread, the French cut silk shirts which hung like, hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high rise down the road, <laughs> and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with the sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman say, with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in a, the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming, the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish, <laughs> To the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, and enjoying a modest cabernet while take, talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. <laughs> I watch the way my daughter Molly is starting to have her George Bilger moments, imagining the, this week it was the, the Flatsy doll. And have you ever seen Flatsy dolls? They were very big in the 60s, and they've made a comeback. And they're flat, and you can put them under your pillow. Anyway. But <laughs> that, that is her new incarnation, is the desire for a Flatsy doll. Now, it seems innocuous now, but it, one thing leads to another, as you can see. So the flip side of this kind of papancha, this kind of complication, this kind of selfing is the, uh, is the 
uh, aversive side, is the side that spends a lot of time in, in worry about the, the future and the, in, in fear, and completely useless, but we literally carry, get carried along in those identities. So we, we're invited to begin to notice this is, I am not worried. Worry is arising right now. It's not me. It's not mine. This is just worry. But it's so easy when worry arises, then to, the story of worry, the story is I am worried and I, I am afraid that whatever happens next will not, my life will not work out. And we have to come to recognize this is just a self-view. This is just a story. And it goes the same with the, with the, um, the opposite of the VR, which is the VV. And you can use your imagination for the rest. You know, somebody triggers a, an aversive response, and before you know it, your mind has just gone off in how that person is the reason for all of your misery or that situation or that, the food here or whatever it is. And we can start to notice, ah, this is, this is selfing. This is the creation of my identity. Uh, in this moment. This is virtual. This I am not. This is not me. This is not mine. The second kind of way that we tend to form our sense of identity in this virtual way is, is through our views and opinions. Our views about, um, about everything views that are our religious views, our cultural views, our gender views, our, uh, just all the different opinions about how things are and how they should be. And, and to be able to see this as an impersonal process in our minds, appearing, disappearing, marked by the same three characteristics, not believing the story. That person should be different than the way they are. I think that the world should be this way, and how much self there is, how much ego, how much tension comes with that sense of this is me, this is mine, my views, this is my truth. How many of you ever have that feeling? This is my truth, me, my mind. A lot of me and mine, and it's very painful. And we're invited to feel that pain, to see it, how it operates, so that we begin to perhaps take it a little less personally. In Dharma circles, lots of, lots of selfing around um, ideas of practice and traditions. You know, we have, we have the Theravada, this, is, this center is uh, loosely identified as a Theravada center. Theravada is, in the eyes of the Mahayana or the Vajrayana, is called the Hinayana, which means lesser vehicle. So everybody has these views. This is more, this is less, this is higher, this is lower, this is good, this is bad. And our mind can create such identity around our views of practice. That's why I really like this little simple poem uh, from Tom Savage where he said, greater vehicle, lesser vehicle, no matter, all vehicles will be towed away at owner's expense. Most of the views and opinions, though, are opinions just about ourselves. The extensions, the elaborations. Remember, there's just six experiences going on, but somehow elaborations on the thought, I should somehow, there's something wrong with me. I should be different than the way I am. And it's very insidious how a simple thought, I am stuck. Any of you ever have that thought? I am stuck. How easy it is to miss that that's just a thought. It may reflect some felt sense in the body, some chronic uh, reoccurring theme in your life or some situation that's difficult to, to navigate. But somehow it becomes globalized to define our, our being. It becomes our identity. I am stuck. Or because it's inevitable that we will 
become uh, sick from time to time, have illness, have something difficult, or have pain, or it's just part of being human. How easy it is to form an identity around our illness. I often tell a story about going to meet a teacher in India who was um, very wonderful at, at teasing out the difference between that simple reality that all of us are sharing right now and the, the way that we frame it, the way that the story we tell in our mind. And I went to see this teacher and on my way to see him I got not deathly ill, but I got ill and I got everything in, under the sun. I had it, all of my openings were discharging and <laughs> it, was, it was not pretty and felt a very high fever and somewhat delirious at moments. And, and uh, he sent me to bed in this little guest cottage across the river from where he was staying. And, and finally, after a day or so, of um, hanging out in bed and getting really embellishing the sense of I am I'm sick because I wasn't comfortable I was actually quite miserable in moments but I didn't realize how much I had embellished it with the identity the virtual uh, version of it and he had sent over some cheese a big chunk of cheese and had started to eat a little cheese I couldn't figure out why he sent me cheese but he sent cheese <laughs> which I thought wouldn't really go down very well, but it, it did okay. But anyway, I finally got well enough to trudge to his um, cottage across the river and up, up several streets, across several bridges, and, and I was just miserable, so busy being sick. And I, could, there, I, I didn't see the difference between being uncomfortable and what my mind was doing with it. And so I entered into the street that he was living on and I bought some bananas and as I was walking down the street some monkeys jumped out of the tree and grabbed my bananas and, <laughs> and it just fed into this feeling of just eh. So I finally made my way into his little cottage, had to walk up the, the steps into the little room where he was meeting with people and he saw me and greeted me and there were just a few of us sitting with him and he said, how are you feeling? And I said, um, I'm feeling better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me really intently. And he said, where is sick? And I looked, and I couldn't find sick. All the symptoms were still, I still feel a little uncomfortable, but I couldn't find that, that identity had vanished. And it dawned on me as the life started to come back into me as the vitality of being plugged back into present time. Out of that drama of being the sick person, once we enter into that drama, we're bound in time. We have to wait until it's over, until we get better. And then, our, and then we're bound in our body. We're so identified with our body as though as that's who or what I am. And it's not working the way I want. But absent of that identity, just being present, there's juice, as you may sense already, when you, in those moments of quiet, we start to get our life back. We start to get ourselves back. Again, not the idea of ourselves. There's not much you can say about yourself from this vantage point, just being present, except I am conscious. And it's hard to find any evidence for not being okay. And to think that that I am sick, or what your version, I am not okay, how often that doesn't just, isn't just seen as a, a thought, but it, it, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then to think that that whole identity that whole extra embellishment on an already uncomfortable situation is just a thought. It's a thought. So I look at the identity, whatever our version is, of I'm not okay. I'm, I am not okay. I am not okay. No, I am not. It's four words. I am not okay. 
I look at that, those four little tiny words, and I wind them back, okay, not, am, I. So we're left with I. I find it always interesting, just for a few moments, just to remove the I, too. See what those identities are made of. But the good news that at the root, the bad news is we get caught. The good news is at the root, we are enough. And the more we hang out here, the more we become more mindful. The more mindful, the more we see where our mind is moving. And this is, a, for me, an inspiration to, to keep vigilant, to keep noticing what my mind is, what kind of identity I'm creating. You may have gotten a vision or a sense of it as you walk about the property. Many people described walking around other people. You start to sometimes, you won't notice it necessarily in the world of thinking, but the way that you form that, I, that the hidden version of those thoughts comes in the form of somebody walks near you and all of a sudden you're, you're, um, you were just being fine, just walking and somebody comes near and all of a sudden you perk up a little bit. This is a sense of self growing and the self idea always manifests as some attempt to be special, to be good, to have control or some power, or be different. We can begin to notice this. My friend James used to use a mental note when he would, he would be doing his walking and this would ha he would see this kind of posturing happen and he would say lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, looking good, Lifting, moving, <laughs> And this really speaks to this kind of selfing, this kind of self-idea, uh, speaks to the, the third kind of uh, way that we form a sense of self. And it's probably the most, uh, most habitual, they're all habitual, but it's the, it's the one that I think maybe torments us more than anything. And it's what the Buddha called, um, he called it um, mana. We, he called it um, mana papancha, the, the creation of self and the, the complication of our experience through thinking about mana means conceit or pride. Somebody gave, gave a question about pride the other day. Conceit or pride, otherwise known as the comparing mind. So it comes in different forms. And there are three kinds of, of, um, of pride or conceit or comparing mind. There's the, the what he called um, mana, which is equal to. I'm equal to that person. Again, it's a whole idea and it has a felt sense to it. I'm equal to you or you're equal to me. That's, the, that's called mana. Then there's um, amana, which is, I'm inferior to you. It's the deflated mind. It's the mind that's caught in one of those views that I'm not okay. And it's often marked by a sense of self-consciousness and contraction and, and uh, what's wrong. And this is a little version of, of uh, amana. And then the last one, also very common, it's called uh, ati mana, which is uh, I am better than you. It's the inflation. And we get inflated in so many ways. Um, it's that attempt to be great. Oh boy, I've gone too long. It's an attempt to, it's our attempt to become someone. It's our attempt to be great. And this idea, this 
identity around being great makes us miss where our real greatness is, is in simplicity. Eckhart Tolle puts it this way. He says, greatness is a mental formation or abstraction and is a favorite fantasy of the self-view. The paradox is that the foundation for greatness is honoring the small things of the present moment instead of pursuing the idea of greatness. The present moment is always small in the sense that it is always simple, but concealed within it lies the greatest power. Like the atom, it is one of the smallest things yet contains enormous power. And while our mind is busy becoming great, above, below, I just have to tell you this one story, even though I'm going a little long. This is an old Hasidic story where one day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joins the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The Seamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined in the other, with the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. So the invitation of our practice is to see through this self-illusion, to see that this mind, that none of this mind can be owned, be taken personally. It's changing. It is ungraspable. It is not self. This body that's in an incessant state of flux and change, changing, unreliable, uncontrollable, also cannot, because it is changing and, and, and impermanent, cannot be said to be me and mine, can't not define me, cannot, um, be, cannot be found in it. Moods, thoughts, images. So through, uh, through the careful observation of our mind and body, seeing the form of thoughts, the selfing ideas, we see through this self-illusion. And the seeing through this self-illusion the good news is that we see through the self the illusion of other, and it keeps unleashing our sense of connection and love. As Sri Nisargadatta put it, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So I'd like to end with a story that I have to share, even though it's a little late. Um, but it's the, um, the story of the why you had Howie's muffins the other night. It's actually not because of me. It was because of the teachings of Ed Brown from the Tassajara Bread Books. Uh, this is a, his story called Biscuits Beyond Compare. When I started teaching or cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blob dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. <laughs> then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan, bake them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury, leave it to Beaver. People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another. But to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day, came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh, my word. I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. 
They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke Sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize that your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable. A thought of feeling ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a bisquick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, all of that. Well, we've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a parent. Yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one who does those things. And if you didn't do them first, I wouldn't do them either. You started it. Don't, pe don't peek behind my cover, we say. And if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, the heck with it. I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? Well, let's just have a moment of quiet. beings accept themselves as they are. May all beings see through the self-illusion. May all beings be free. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for your practice. And we have 23 minutes for walking practice now. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.